On this episode of Of Mex and Men, Ramage digs in, Fraser is crushed, and so is Lori when she catches Grayson playing with his map. Hello, this is Of Mex and Men. I'm Kenan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. Brent is my name. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. What's going on, boys? Well, I didn't leave my TK rifle in a trench during a battle, so I'm doing all right. Well, that's good, because today we'll be covering chapters six through eight of the book we've been working through. The Price of Glory by William H. Keith Jr. Let's begin. Chapter 6. This chapter opens with Kind of like a little reintroduction for Ramage, the character. I thought this would be good for maybe if someone had just read this one and not the other two, if this was their first time, because it does. This chapter just opens with it's just a few paragraphs that are just kind of catches you up on Sergeant Ramage. I love the first sentences. Until now, Captain Ramage had been happy with his life. <laughs> like, oh man, <laughs> it talks about how he like, met Grayson on Trelwan, and they formed the Great Death Legion, and he went with him to Verthandi, and how he specializes in anti-mech warfare, and he has, like, the best dudes. And every once in a while, he makes a cameo with a mustache. Yeah. Basically, it's just this whole section about how he's good at what he does. It's just like, let's take a moment to talk about Sergeant Ramage. He's the best. Or, excuse me, I guess it's Captain Ramage. Now, we talked about this earlier. He's not sergeant anymore, and he was upset about it. Much to his dismay. He was like, but the boys, they come to me. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> He's very upset about it. Grayson uses the example that some thick-headed lieutenant is going to cause him problems, and he will have to put him in his place, and you will need to be able to pull rank. It, it seems like he doesn't necessarily disagree with him, but he just kind of like, okay, Grayson. I do like how Keith gave us, like, the first explanation of Ramage getting a promotion, how much he didn't like it. And then it's like, no, we're going to dedicate a page to it here. <laughs> Which is fine. I think it is. As you said, if, if somebody is coming into this book as their first Battletech book and picking up with it, we wouldn't understand the whole story of what Ramage is doing. And I think when you're talking about the Mech Warriors, it's a little bit more believable of what they're going through. They can hop into a Mech. They can pilot the Mech. But so far, everything that Ramage has done is like this heavy training on anti-mech commando tactics. That and digging holes. He's the best. He's the best at what he does. And so getting a brief moment to be able to connect with him through this, I think, is a well-placed little scene. Yes. He's very well respected and loved by his troops. They love Captain Ramage. I love Captain Ramage. 
He's like, I want to be sergeant. He's like, it's my. He's like, sergeant's my whole thing. I'm Sergeant Ramage. He's like, he's like, the bit doesn't work. He'll come around on it eventually. He'll be like, Captain Ramage. That's pretty good. So after that little section where it kind of brings us up to speed on what Ramage has been up to, we cut to the present day where he's crouching in a trench and he's doing some recon. He's like, you see him. He's got the binoculars. He's looking out. Remember, Ramage was back with the dropships right, the Phobos and the Deimos, he was left behind when Grayson and the others went forward to Durandel. Ramage stayed back with the recon lance and all the armor assets and stuff. So they're still back there, but remember, he stayed behind to defend the dropships. And now they have incoming mechs. And not just a lance, it's like, it's like an entire company. It's like 12 mechs, plus infantry and armor, Merrick forces approaching. That's a whole company. Yeah, it's a whole company. It says they have like a Warhammer, two archers, a Thunderbolt. There's, it's like way more weight than the Recon lands. It's like not even close. Yeah, they're totally outtunned. I think the Warhammer is actually Colonel Langsdorf's. I think he's in the Warhammer. And then, but yeah, they have a Thunderbolt too. That's a big one. That's a classic. <laughs> I was thinking about this composition here, Grayson taking his support by fire and his command lance out. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Because it could have made sense for him to leave his fire support lance and then take the recon lance out there, and they still would have wiped the floor. However, I actually stand by what Grayson did here, which is he left his fast mover, his kind of the recon cavalry unit. So that they can respond to whatever needs to be, whether that's getting away, regrouping, or if they needed to reinforce those other two lances, they could because they, they're going to move over ground much faster. So I think it makes sense. However, unfortunately, they are quite outtunned because I don't think they were expecting this much company. And with the spotted mechs. We do get our first new mech in a while. We do. We haven't gotten to see one of those since for Thandy, right? Oh, yeah. Since for Thandy. Yeah, we haven't. Midway through, I think, I don't remember which episode it was, we had like a whole lineup of them. Now, some of you might point out that there was a crushed Vindicator, but I felt like we shouldn't do our boy of the Vindicator. We got to call him out when we see him standing. <laughs> yeah, so we did skip him. But the Thunderbolt, the 65-ton Thunderbolt 5S is a staple of a mainline brawler during the Succession Wars era. With an impressive convergence at all but long range, the 2C's thick Thunderbolt can give even the 75-ton Marauder a run for its money at mid-range. The Thunderbolt's asymmetrical main arsenal consists of the massive Sun Glow Type 2 large laser and a Delta Dart LRM 15. Reinforced with three diverse optics Type 18 medium lasers and a Baikal short range missile twin pack, you can see it has a little something for everyone. But that's not all. Supplementarily, we have two Volkers 200 machine guns to cleanse those trenches of pesky infantry. Oh, let's not forget about armor. For a 65-ton mech, the Thunderbolt has equal, if not better, armor than both the 70-ton Warhammer and the 75-ton Marauder. Oh, and this Chonker can keep up with them, too. 
the Thunderbolt can reach a maximum speed of 62.4 kph. As long as a pilot properly manages this thing's heat, it will often enough bring victory to whom brings it to the field of battle. It's classic. It's got the big drum-like rocket launcher on the shoulder. It's iconic. It's been a staple since Battletech was Battle Droids, for sure. It definitely has that like intimidating presence to it, similar to... Like rolling up on an atlas, a thunderbolt can give you that same feeling of like it's just a big, it's thick huge. mech. It's thick, and it looks scary. It's large. Seeing a thunderbolt is a problem, especially yep. when it's paired up with something good. I do recommend uh, Nerdy Overanalyzed on YouTube does an excellent little tactical breakdown of how to use the thunderbolt on the tabletop. He really gets in the weeds, and I love it. I would definitely check him out. It's such a tank of a mech. It looks like an old World War II tank if it was like a mech. Yeah, it's a brick. The Thunderbolt's cool. I like the name too, Thunderbolt. It sounds like some kind of model of like military. It's like, ah, yes, the Thunderbolt. The uh, This thing's a classic. I have been to multiple change of command ceremonies in which they played ACDC's Thunderstruck. So I agree with you. The Thunderbolt does invoke the name that the military industrial complex would use to market a giant mech. If that checks out to me. (laughs) So we also learn that their signal is being jammed. They try to get on comms and it's like, it's all static and it's like, Oh no, they have uh, electronic countermeasures, right? They're being jammed. They can't talk to anyone. That's not good. I like here. We get a bit about uh, military field telephones, which I didn't recall from my other listening slash readings of Price of Glory. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So a field telephone, for anyone that doesn't know, I'll try and make this quick. <laughs> it's essentially, when you were kids, did you ever do the, like, put a piece of string between two cups and then, like, talk to your buddy? You know, like you saw yeah. on, like, TV shows. Sure. That's pretty much what a field telephone is. You get a piece of some telephone cord. And I thought it was interesting. Here's a little like 80s futurism here where they're like, oh, but these ones, they use fiber optics. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yes, very future. Um, (laughs) Those field phones are getting one gig speed. (laughs) Yeah. I just thought it was cool. I wanted to shout it out. I was like, oh, but it makes sense. I was joking about it, but. Once you get into like levels of electronic warfare, using very simple practical solutions are a good way of getting around such countermeasures. And it's just like, oh, we'll just run a landline, essentially. And that's a very good solution that we still use to this day. And I imagine as countermeasures increase, we'll see them continue to be used. So I thought it was cool that he added it in here. Even though I was like, haha, fiber optics, fancy. (laughs) (laughs) I also like the way that, as just a little detail there, it helps paint the scene of like you're in the trenches, you're watching guys with spools of cable running down the length of the trench, watching everybody piled up on the side, looking at these mechs incoming. Totally. It's just cool. The guy asked him, he's like, what does it mean if they're jamming us? And Ramaj brings up the point. He's like, it means that they know we're here. It means that this is a deliberate attack. Communication disruptions can only mean one thing. Invasion. invasion. (laughs) 
Ramaj estimates that the enemy forces should be on top of them in about 20 minutes. So they don't have very long. He calls for a runner. He's like, give me a runner. I need a guy. And he has this like little mini recorder, right? And he like records a little message into it for like Captain Martinez. Well, he says, situation critical. I strongly urge that the main body Grey Death Mech Company be alerted using jam breaker techniques from dropships. Estimate infantry and recon lances not sufficient to more than delay approaching forces if hostile. And he like makes this little recording of it and he puts it, it like records into like a little data chip, right? And he calls yeah. the runner over and he like pulls a little chip and he puts it in this little case. It's like a little Game Boy. I think of like, remember your little Game Boy cases? <laughs> yeah. He puts it in one of those and he gives it to the guy and he's like, run this to the drop ship and give it to Martinez. I thought this was cool. I was like, oh, it's like a little micro SD card. However- yeah. I didn't envision a Game Boy case. I totally envisioned what every infantryman's waterproofing solution is, which is a Ziploc bag. Nice. Cook your ramen, send your notes. <laughs> yeah, placed it in a small waterproof canister. It's funny. It would. That's the bit. It's, he drops it in a Ziploc bag and closes it. <laughs> so he sends the runner off, and Ramaj is, they're still standing there. They're watching the mechs, and he's like, man. I hope Grayson gets back here because these guys are going to mess us up. And then, of course, we cut back over to Grayson. He's back with the rest of the command lance and the fire lance, right? Because they did all that stuff in Durandell. They're still there, of course. They're back in Durandell. Grayson, he's on the radio, right? And he's trying to get through, though. And he notices that they're being jammed, right? He's like, man, I can't get through to anyone. They're probably being jammed. He goes, huh, that's weird. Um, what's going on? And then he turns to Lori and Grayson's like, Lori, what do you think? And Lori's like, I think they're being jammed. And then Grayson's like, me too. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I just true. thought it was, I thought it was funny that he got like a, <laughs> a little old Grayson spice <laughs> yeah. to sprinkle in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I get it. Sometimes yeah. you want to be like, am I crazy? But like, I was like, nah, this <laughs> Like I like the idea of it pretty... being more Grayson's like shaking his radio, like looking <laughs> yeah. at it. Turns to Lori and like, I think it's broken. And then Lori's like, no, I think it's jammed, Grayson. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, me too. That's what, of course. <laughs> we got to savor our old Grayson bit whenever we can find Whenever we point. can get him, exactly. We love who he's become, but or we're allowed to miss him too. <laughs> They're still in Durandell. They're still finding bodies. They're pulling people out of the rubble. Right, because the whole city was completely destroyed. There are a lot of survivors. Right? I think there are more survivors than there are counted dead. But mm. a, most of them are injured, unfortunately. But they all have a similar tale, right? Everyone that they asked what happened, they all give them this story. Turns out, a force claiming they were under the command of Lord Garth, the Duke of Irian, right? They were landing at the Helmdown starport. And they told everyone that a great victory had been won at Sirius 5, and the Grey Death Legion was due some special honor, and the leaders in Durandell and the Captain Baron had gone to Helmdown, right? They left Durandell, and they'd gone to the capital city to talk with the Merrick representatives, and they never return, right? They don't come back. And then the next day, the... Hammer Strike Company of the 5th Merrick Guards secures Helms down. So their leaders leave, and then they hear that the Merrick forces have taken control of Helms down. 
And then that's when they received a message. The Merrick forces broadcasted a message that your leaders have been declared in rebellion against the legal government of the Free World's League. And they request that they surrender to their lawful lords or be destroyed. And we learn that a young Lieutenant Fraser had assumed command in absence of the central leadership, assumed command and the responsibility of the defense of Helmfast. What a brave guy. And he took the assets, the armor. I think that they had, they said they had taken all the mechs and, but he had some tanks and stuff. Does it say if he has mechs with him? It does say their but their mechs had been packed aboard the Phobos month before to serve as reserve mechs. Right. That's right. So poor Lieutenant Frazier took his armor company out there. He engaged the Merrick mechs on the planes, right? It didn't work out, though. In the process, Frazier does get crushed by a griffin and dies. Well, speaking of Lieutenant Frazier getting crushed, let's talk about what he was in, the Vedette Medium Tank. The Vedette Medium Tank is a tank in the truest classical sense of the word, sharing the 80mm Armstrong J11 size 5 autocannon with the Shadowhawk and a scattergun light machine gun as backup. It has more in common with old tanks on ancient Terra than its contemporaries. What it does bring to the table in 3025 is speed. Moving at a swift 86 kph, its locum pack 250 inner combustion engine allows for it to diligently fulfill its role as a light cavalry tank. Well, unfortunately for Frazier, the vedette doesn't come with Griffin foot guards. <laughs> yeah, they tell everyone's telling Grayson this story, right? When he's like, what happened? And that's kind of like what he gathers. Leaders went out. Frazier took over. There was a there, there was a battle. Frazier got crushed. Grayson, we you know we have the the moment where he remembers Frazier. After that, Helmfast surrenders. Okay, they open the gates, right? And they accept. They're like, yes, we give up. Come on in. They like open the gates. They're gonna have like open negotiations. And then they say the Merrick forces came in and discontinued to destroy stuff. Right? I mean, Grace is looking around and there's like not a single building left intact. He's just like, did I do this? What happened? And they tell him what happened. These Merrick forces showed up and they destroyed everything. And now, like of the 700 that they originally left behind, the 700 people, they've only so far only found about 400 of them, many of them injured. It's horrible. Grayson's just like, What's, what is all this? What are all these tricks? It's all this deception. It's, it's the aftermath of really the tragedy of Durandell. It's sad. He's just kind of taking stock. Uh, he's just trying to figure out what happened. We still don't know exactly why, but we know that now it was the Merrick guards. They came in and they even like tricked them. What's going on? And I like how Keith gave us a reflective point for Grayson with his memory of Frazier yeah. picking him up on Galatea as yeah. kind of like a young spunky kid and his desire to seek glory on the battlefield. And Grayson's like, listen, listen, bud. It yeah. kind of sucks out there. You don't know the real price of glory. Exactly. That's, yes, such glory came only at a price, a steep price. He, uh, yeah, Grayson bought him a drink, right? You get this little scene it, before, 
I feel like right before we see Fraser get stomped into oblivion, <laughs> you see Grayson like, let me buy you a drink, bud. It says, you know, he was good. He was like this optimistic young officer. He was good enough that he could have gotten in a house. It says, you know, he could have joined a house regiment or whatever, but he was like, I want to be a mercenary, you know, I want some of that glory. And yeah, Grayson's mm-hmm. like, it's tough. Are you sure you want it? And now I think Grayson, yeah, he's kind of like regretting. He's like, man, I should have just left him there. That's sad. Poor Fraser. Well, and as we got the micro example of Frasier for Grayson, we then get to look at it as in the whole chapter where he has completed the raid on Sirius 5 of Tiantan and, hey, they've surrendered to him. And Grayson handles it very professionally to then contrast it with the now the next instance he has of experience with it is what he's heard the Merrick forces have done the exact opposite. People surrendered, and then they continue just to tear apart the city and kill people. Yeah. This is obviously very upsetting. Probably the darkest moment so far for the Grey Death Legion. And not only that, there's a lot of deception involved here. A lot of tricks. That's what he says. He's like, there's been tricks Within tricks, he says, there would be no more such tricks. And we don't even know why all of this. That's true. Why did the Grey Death Legion allegedly do? Yeah. I mean, we know. But also, we don't know what actually why, though. We do, we do get to learn it real soon here. This is a lot of death for what seems like no reason right now. Well, and especially it's horrifying. to the Grey Death Legion, who just completed a contract, we're told, hey, go to Merrick, get special honors. And they said, let's just go to Helm. Let's recuperate. Let's get everybody back together. And then we're just going to see what's happening. And then it's your home's burning. You hear the story that it's like, oh, they're going to receive the special honor. And then the whole town's wipe out even after surrendering. Grayson still doesn't know about what's going down on Sirius 5. No. He doesn't know what's happened. So everyone here must just be in a complete state of shock. And I like that Keith doesn't give us the explanation of what's going on or anything, leaving us kind of in the dark with the characters. I like that you get this kind of like the whole thing Kanan was just explaining the uh, they're talking about like what they've managed to get from the residents of Durandel that are still standing. I love this little vignette you get where they're kind of explaining and there was only there was so much fog of war. We really don't know what was going on there. And then it's like we kind of know what happened to this lieutenant and we're really just kept in the dark overall. And I like the way that he describes that. Though Mm -hmm. We jump forward a few hours later and we get a scene. Lori finds Grayson in what used to be the briefing room in Helmfast Castle. Remember, this place is like, they tore it down at the studs. It's barely standing, but the computer still works. He's like, I got the computer working. Check it out. This thing was hardwired into the wall, so it's still working. And they're like, cool. And she's like, what are you doing? He's like, studying a map. It's like, why? (laughs) We've been here before, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It's like, Lori's like, what's going on? And he's like, just studying something. Just grace and stuff. And... Oh, the map, though, what's funny is it's the one that was given to him when they got the landhold. Janos Merrick gave him this map. So it's an old map because they noticed that the sea is still there. There There's a body of water on the map that's no longer there. It's now like these salt flats. But there used to be water, and they can see it on this map. And he's trying to get a lay of the land. He's found a valley 
where they can set up camp for the survivors, right? He's like, obviously, we can't stay here. This is compromised. I like to think that Grayson's looking at it. It's like, what would be the loudest area we could set up in? Yeah, I, <laughs> I miss Thunder Rift. Maybe this valley screams or something. I see you're trying to set up that shop for another mud run. Yep. A mud run. Um, Coming in too low for your mud run. <laughs> Grayson, you've turned off your targeting computer. <laughs> what? Yeah. We do get a section where Grayson's like geeking out though and like showing Lori the map. Like, you want to see how it works? Check this out. When I press this button, it's like five times magnification. And he's like zooming in and out on stuff. And she's like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> I absolutely love because it's like you get quality up to like <laughs> yeah. one kilometer. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I, I, I love that Lori comes in and he's like explaining it's like, you see all these terrain features and you follow them along and Lori's like, I know how to read a map, Grace. Yeah, she says that. (laughs) We've we've had multiple military campaigns together, Grayson. But there's such a fun energy about it because this is I read that sentence with the exact tone that my wife gives me when I start talking to her about Battletech. And she's like, I know yes. about the robots, Aaron. <laughs> You've been talking about the robots for so Ooh, yeah. long. So I was messing with Grayson about this map thing, right? But it does make sense. This is the only map he has. So he's trying to get as much of a lay of the land as he can with this outdated map. And so he's looking at key terrain, which makes sense, right? It is funny where he's like, hey, Lori, check out map. Have you seen one of these before? But it does make mm-hmm. sense that he's sitting here doing this. He's making plans. He's doing he's doing colonel stuff. Yeah. It is. It says that this is several hours later. And it's like, Grayson, buddy, look, he's got to figure out what to do with all these people. But also, we just remember Romage is like, man, I hope Grayson gets here soon. And Grayson's like, Lori, check it out. <laughs> doot, doot, doot. That's how I read it too. When I when I came through, I had the little cut back to yeah. Ramage in my head where he's like, that's one <laughs> smart kid and he'll be here in no time. And it just like cut back to like Grayson like zooming in, zooming <laughs> yeah. out, zooming yeah. back in, zooming back out. It's like, huh? Uh, <laughs> see, it, it zooms out up to a kilometer of detail. Yeah. <laughs> Lori, a kilometer. (laughs) We are making light of it. But, Bryn, I completely agree with you that Grayson does normally act on those things. But he did just find, as he has referred to him many times as family, many of them dead. And now he's concerned saying, there's got to be survivors. So I can look at this map and I can kind of follow. I know my people. Maybe I can find where these are and we can get them somewhere safe. So the priority definitely has shifted for him, and he might not be thinking the clearest tactically. Uh, You know, I think either way, he knows these maps exist. It doesn't seem like he spent a lot of time here on Helm, so he doesn't have a good... He's not acclimatized to a lot of the key terrain features. I'm sure that he was briefed at some point, but that was before this long Capellan campaign, right? So I think it makes sense, even though... It, this might be the only time he gets with this map, yeah. right? And while he maybe he shouldn't be diddle-daddling with it and like, Lori, hey, check it out. I think it does make sense that he's going to go and even though time is of the essence, take some time and get a lay of the land. I do think that this makes sense. We'll have to see if it pays dividends or not. He tells Lori to go find Devilar and get Devilar to round up the refugees and get them to the encampment so that they can be better protected and to keep searching for survivors because we have hundreds unaccounted for. But he said they've already uncovered 
perhaps 50 bodies so far. But at the end of this scene, though, he is like, I'll alert the mechs, and the company will head back to the LZ at full gallop. We gotta go. He is aware. I think the two scenes with Ramaj are a little, like, offset in time on each other. I think this is right after that battle. Mm-hmm. Ramaj has been over there, and then we're gonna cut back. It's like we're getting caught up with, like, what happened over here. Because Lori's like, right. oh, you're worried about the dropships. And he's like, yeah, I'm worried about the dropships. We got to take the mechs back to the dropships. We can't lose the dropships. They're over there. I only left the recon lands. We got to go. So we know the communications are being blocked. So something's going on. And the chapter ends with Grayson and everyone mounting up the mechs and heading back to where they left the dropships. I just feel so bad for the Great Death Legion in this chapter. Just thinking of that idea of how close they were to just being able to settle down. And that exhaustion of the Verthandi campaign going through another campaign right after that. And then it's just like, we're going to have some time off. We can get established. We can build up something. And it's just like, we're right back into the position we were at in Verthandi, except this time we don't know who the enemy is. They're right back with their back against the wall. Yeah. We don't know what's happening. We have no idea what's going on. And we're the primary target is the only thing we're sure of. It's a son of a bitch. It's one thing with Verdandi, right? You're on this backwater world, out on the periphery. There's a loose vested interest in material goods, but otherwise it's kind of just a strategic holding, right? With a populace that is generally suppressed and only causing so much problems, right? And to kind of kick over that hornet's nest... You're not going to bring the whole might of the Korean military down, yep. right? As we saw, there's much more important things going on for them to kind of swat the gnat that was Greece and Carlisle on for Thandy. But here, as Aaron was saying, there's this crosshair on the Legion. And it doesn't seem like there's any getting away from yeah. this. There is a problem that has to be solved or they're done. Those are pretty high stakes. No, I agree completely because I think you made a good point about Verthandi was on the periphery. It was off a lot of people's radar. This is in Free Worlds League space. There is no getting away from this. This isn't being forgotten about. This isn't being outside of it and having somebody come in and jump to your help. This is in the belly of the beast of it. And he's not going to be able to just jump his way out, right? He doesn't know what he's done, but these people are upset. This is personal. They laid Durandell to ruin. Mm -hmm. That is not something that you do as brutal as the Succession Wars have been. In the earlier Succession Wars, sure, there were some scorched earth operations, but generally, you don't see this kind of thing anymore. Unless you're dealing with some, like, real unsavory characters, pirates, or, you know, someone that does scorch earth someone else, right? So... Whatever has happened for the Grey Death to get this target on their back, there's no jumping away. There's nowhere they're going to get away mm-hmm. from. They're oh, yeah. in the middle of Merrick space. Helm is just about, it is a few jumps away from the Merrick capital. It is at the heart of the Free Worlds League. There's no Grayson getting to the jump ships and Tor jumping out and them getting away. Not with the way that they're acting. I agree, and I think Keith did a great job within that first meeting outside Tiantan, where he mentioned the conventions and Grayson's going through those motions. So we got a full layout of just how outside the realm of standard warfare this action taken 
on Helm is. It is very sad. I was hoping that they would get here and they could have like a party in their castle. They'd be having a good time and whatnot. But no, it's a Grey Death Legion story. So there, here we are again, up against the wall. <laughs> Once again. Up against the wall, fighting the whole entire world. It's what they do. Yeah, and we'll have to find out exactly what is going on when we get into the next chapter. Chapter 7. We are introduced to Colonel Julian Langsdorf, or at least we're given more information on his background. We learn he's the regimental commander of the 12th White Sabres, which is, of course, an understrength regimental assault group assigned to garrison duty on Thermopolis. <laughs> he also has the support of the 5th Merrick Guards, as we've previously right. heard. However, I did my due diligence on the 12th White Sabres, and I didn't know anything about them. I'm not going to be honest, Merrick, something not often on my radar, and apparently for the Battletech writers as well, at least in the early years. Outside of the source books. So I was surprised when I was like, oh, 12th White Sabres. And it directed me to 12th Atreian Dragoons, which I guess is the actual name of the 12th White Sabres. I guess the White Sabres is a uh, nickname, actually. Or just the White Sabres. Which I think makes sense considering their coat of arms, which are two cross sabres oh. and four what appear to be doves holding said sabres up. Which I thought was a ironic... And, and fun little coat of arms. So the Atreian Dragoons, they have a storied history. I'm not going to get into that too much here. Don't want to mess up the flow too much. But I did want to say uh, they also have a camo spec page. And I checked out their color scheme. It's pretty cool. It's like a kind of a light, like almost limey green with a gray black drop. And they have a whole storied history here. It's cool. They do seem cool. We learned that two weeks ago, he was approached by a man named General Clyder of Janos Merrick's personal house command staff. And General Clyder tells him that he's been sent here at the behest of Lord Garth. And we also learn a little bit about Langsdorf's family, about how his father is like a minor noble. He has some like land holding. He's a rich kid, but he's a good commander. It does seem like his father earned that with his loyalty to Janus Merrick, it was given as a gift for supporting him during that civil war I was talking about previously between Anton Merrick uh, as well as his own flesh and blood son. Well, Anton was his brother, and then one of his sons went to support Anton oh, Merrick yeah. as well. I guess Colonel Langsdorf's father assisted the Captain General in quelling said rebellion. Yes. He's a Janus man through and through. Through and through. Service to your liege lord, above all else. General Clyder is telling Langsdorf that there's been a plot. A plot has been uncovered. One that could shake the very foundation of the Free Worlds League to its core. And it must be stopped in order to prevent another civil war from arising. 
And Langsdorf is like, wow, this sounds so crazy. Wow, I'm I'm so honored to be a part of this. What's <laughs> going on? And Clyder tells him that a mercenary is organizing a rebellion on Helm, right? One that's he's planning to destabilize the Free Worlds League, and we got to stop him. And that's why I wanted to frame his father did the very same. He was essential in stopping a previous civil war from getting out of hand. And so you see how this is very intentioned from Lord Garth. It seems like he's almost using his father's legacy to kind of apply pressure with this story he's come up with. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wanted to point that out. I thought that that was well thought out. I agree. Well, now we cut back to the present day. Langsdorf obviously accepted the mission. He's here now with the Merrick guards. He's seized the starport and the capital. He's captured the rebel leaders. He's captured the rebel's castle. And he feels really weird about it, right? He's just like, this isn't what's going, this isn't right. Why did I have to hurt all these people? It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't like it. Which... It makes sense it's not all adding up for him. However, he was told that under no circumstances could he accept surrender. The guy was very stern. He's like, any of them could be dangerous. They're all planning. I'm sure he has conspirators all throughout the court. And Langsdorf, he's a military guy. He's by the book. He's like, we don't hurt civilians. That's not what we do. But Clyder's not messing around. He's like, look, listen, you got to understand, man. These mercenaries, all right, they've perpetrated atrocities. Okay, and they're going to use that to falsely blame the captain general. Okay, like we could have a real international incident kind of a situation on our hands if we don't do something about these mercenaries. Yeah, and of course, he really leans on his loyalty. Like you said, like his father, he's like, oh, come on, you're the son of a noble, faithful service to your liege lord and all that, above all else and whatnot, all that stuff they say. But Langsdorf... Thankfully, he seems to be a thinking man, and we see a constant theme we see throughout Keith's work, which is characters and their ability to kind of trust themselves and their gut feeling. And Langsdorf, he's doing it. He is paying service to his lord, or what he believes is his lord's bidding, but he's not all the way on. And I think we'll continue to see this way on Colonel Langsdorf as the story moves forward. And he's going to have to do something about it, or the thorn in his side is only going to continue to grow. Yes. And Keith does a great job using this segment to paint his undying loyalty versus his honor in military command, where I can receive the orders, but still take some outside thought to them i can still weigh them on my own conscience and you see that he's committed to the order and that has all been factored in as part of this plan as he was the man for the job because they knew they could get him with that yes there's something i want to highlight here too something that really bothers langsdorf is that lord garth really doesn't give him any wiggle room Mm -hmm. generally speaking at least in modern military organizations. This is not true throughout the world we live in, but generally speaking, at least in the West, you see there's usually, in the rank structure, you see military commanders and non-commissioned officers. They're granted a lot of leeway. 
Yeah. It is designed that orders are passed down, but they are generally broad. There is an amount of trust that the military organization bestows on people who have come to a certain rank to the ability for them to use their best judgment to make a call on the ground when they need to. And we see here, Lord Garth is not giving him that trust. And that's a red flag. And Langsdorf has picked up on this. He's like, this seems odd. And that's clearly adding to his gut troubles, if you will. Absolutely. Definitely. This whole scene, if you, we see him, he's like sitting in the cockpit of his Warhammer. He's thinking about when they were attacking Durandell. He smashed open a house and like a woman ran out with like her child and he let her go. He had her right in his sights and he was like, I didn't shoot her. Why would I shoot her? It says he's torn between duty and morality. Aren't we all? So I love that we get this little insert. We get insight into Langsdorf's character. It's been building up throughout these paragraphs in chapter seven, but this one really, I think, hammers it home that Langsdorf isn't a bad guy. He wants to help protect the realm of House Merrick. Mm -hmm. He's a team player, but he's not a murderer. He has unfortunately committed murder here, but when faced with the raw reality of it, we see that he's unwilling to truly commit. Yeah. And I love that this is one of Keith's mechanisms on the literary side. This is something we've talked about in each book, and particularly when we were in Mercenary Star, in our introduction to Nagomu, we got to say, where is the weak spot in the yeah. armor that Grayson gets to work with? And Keith, once again, sets that up right in front of us. In the very introduction, the first direct viewpoint we have with an antagonist, there's this wiggle room for Grayson to operate in. There's this gray space that can open up a chance for us as readers to see it unfold that Grayson does have a chance as long as he makes all the right decisions all the way through, which is the strength of these books, is that, as we talked about earlier, Grayson with his back up against the wall is a terrible place for him to be and a terrible place for him to be for his enemies. This series of books, it does a phenomenal job of showing you that it's not just strategy and tactics that win war, not just like in the raw sense of the word, but it's also understanding your enemy and who they are and what they are. And you're right. However, unlike with Nagomu, where his villainous disregard for human lives of his enemies and his people he was responsible for was a weakness, I would actually argue that this is a strength mm -hmm. in Colonel Langstorff. And while it is a chink in his armor for Grayson to use, as in this is where Grayson can get... I don't even want to use the analogy of the knife through the armor because the precedent here is Grayson has to win Langsdorff over with the truth. Yeah. He has to find a way to get to this honest man, the truth, in order to right. be victorious. And I like that Keith is setting that the conditions for victory in this book are not who can beat the other man with the giant robots, but it's who can get the truth out first. Yeah, who can get ahead with the truth and not get it lost in 
the static of all the lies. The choice Langsdorf has to make is, does he follow orders or does he do what's right? That choice will determine the fate of the Great Death Legion. And I love that Keith took a moment here. We've had all Keith bad guys have been truly bad guys. We had the Kevlavik Nogomu Vlade team last time, the trio of supervillains. And this time it's like, well, now we got Garth being real shifty with things. And then we've got Langsdorf, who's a good guy, but Keith is going a step deeper into talking about some of the harsh realities of war, which is, is doing the greater good a good moral thing? And that's setting him up into the antagonist camp in this early stage. So I can't wait to see what he's going to do with this, because so far, Keith has done this kind of thing so well in the past, in the previous book. So this was uh, the particular segment that got me really excited. So we're with Langsdorf. He's in his Warhammer. They're heading to the enemy LZ, right? Because by this point... Langsdorf has received the message that the eight mechs that he left behind at Durandel, they've lost contact with them, right? He's, they're now presumed destroyed. He's like, I left those guys behind, and then we checked in on them, and they're not there anymore. And then he got the report about the how the dropships had slipped through, right? Because he was contacted. The guy in the ship, he was yelling at Shiggy. He tells Langsdorf, that we got some dropships coming down. You got to keep your eyes open. And he's like, okay, what now? We have the dropships coming. He's even like, if that's two unions, they could be dropping like a whole battalion on me. We could get crushed here. But he's mad because he's like, I was told the whole plan was that they were to be diverted. They weren't supposed to come here at all, right? There was not supposed to be any enemy force showing up. I don't even have that many mechs here. I don't even have enough stuff to like hold a planet from like an attacking force. He's like, look, we just got to get to this dropship before these enemy mechs return. Whoever did the work at Durandel, look, we got to check out these dropships, all right? Let's capture some dropships, okay? While this does add to his suspicions, we see his prowess as a commander, right? Which is, listen, I think those mechs are gone, and we need to get ahead of this thing. If they have two dropships, and those mechs are there now, we can divide and conquer right now, and if we press our attack on one of these dropships, we can get the upper hand quickly. And so that's the decision he makes. And I think that's a smart one. Yep, I agree. Then we cut back to Ramage, and he's watching the enemies approaching through his binoculars again. He's watching a wasp and a locust. They're in the front, and they're kind of approaching their line. He's got the trenches dug out. He's got all of his dudes. They've dug their trenches. They have their guns and their rocket launchers. And he's like, all right, they'll be on us soon. Everyone get ready. He can see that there's heavy mechs behind them, but it's just the two light mechs in the front. They're kind of like pushing over this like line of infantry that he has entrenched. Oh, they've now resorted to using flags and armbands because of the jamming, right? They've had to go old school. And he has like a runner. The kid has like an armband on. Mermage has like a little flag to mark where he's supposed to be on the trench. I like, they're in these little trenches. It's very cool. And the mechs are coming up on him. I love that description of that, that how they had gone back to the very like old tried and true tactics. 
like all the way back from like the Chinese warring states period where they'd have to have flag systems to communicate. There was no mass communication on the battlefield. So knowing where your command is, is so important, but it's a double-edged sword because if you've announced where your command is, you can get attacked there. So having that all coordinated really speaks to Ramage's skill here. And not only the future combat, but how much they'll reflect on historical combat to put things back into place when tech fails. Just a fun, neat little scene. I don't think you realize how much you really hit the nail on the head there. Signal plan, it is crucial when you are making battle plans, right? From top to bottom, there are redundancies upon redundancies, supplementary and alternate plans. And a kind of like bottom line redundancy on communication is something to this day that is so crucial on the battlefield. And we're seeing in a lot of modern conflicts the use of these rudimentary signal plans. I think Keith did a great job of showing the ingenuity of the Great Death Legion and his understanding of kind of how all this stuff works. The runner tells Ramage that Captain Martinez reports that she has three boomerangs on radar. And I guess boomerangs are like spy planes, right? Because Bermage is like, oh, that's how they know exactly where we are. They can see us. It even says he stifles a sudden half-crazed urge to smile and wave at the sky. <laughs> when he hears they have spy planes, he's like, don't smile and wave, Ramage. That's, it's, that's like his first <laughs> reaction is to like wave at the sky. And it's very funny. I love yeah. Ramage. <laughs> I love cheeky Ramage, yeah. So boomerangs, I didn't even think to do a little bit on this. Just for the record, they're these little, like, one-seater prop planes. I mean, they're basically drones. They're real small, little, like, lightweight aircraft. In fact, let's see. What's Sarno say their tonnage is? Five tons. Five tons. It seems heavy. Where's McCall when you need him? That's cool. So, Ramage... Sends the runner back with the message for Captain Martinez. He tells her, he gives her the situation. He says, we got at least eight mechs, including the heavies. They're at about two kilometers and closing. He has surmised, I think correctly, that the opposing force most likely is going to use their light units to like harass and then kind of swing their heavy elements around and flank them. Of course, standard stuff. We got activity all up and down the trench line, right? The dudes are getting ready. We got, this is, the chapter ends with just Ramage's boys, just like they're racking their rifles, putting the rockets in the tubes. They're like, yeah, these are like his best guys. It's funny because he's like, yeah, we got them. These are my dudes. But, you know, honestly, we're probably not going to do anything. These are battle mechs here. You know, what are we, stupid? Anyway, he's like, it's just, the chapter ends with Ramage. He like racks his rifle and he's like, here it comes. So I do have two two like ending statements. One, I love that we open the chapter with infantry doing the thing that they often do on the battlefield in Battletech, which is spotting. And two, I got a bone to pick because Ramaj, don't put it in condition one when the enemy's at your doorstep. As soon as you're outside enemy lines, your weapon should be condition one, which the enemy lines are everywhere here, so <laughs> Listeners, you might be wondering what the hell I'm talking about here, and uh, I'm sorry I'm like this. (laughs) Um, We are too. So, condition one, it means having a weapon with a round in the chamber, as in like a round 
ready for you to click the safety off and put down range. It's a military term, and I just kind of slung it out there and didn't explain it. So what I was getting at is um, Ramage didn't have a round ready to go, which, if he had gotten surprised, would have been a problem for him. I'm sorry again, and back to our scheduled programming. Think of the miniseries, Brent. Think of that right. cool episode closer of Ramage cocking the rifle back and getting ready to go. Hollywood does love the sound of a bolt returning. <laughs> uh, that's true. But I love this chapter. I really enjoyed it. I I actually think that this chapter so far, in all the books we've covered, I think this is Keith at his best so far. The reason being is all this setup to get to this tension point has been kept at all sides. There's no breaks. There's no relief. No. This is the Price of Glory's moment of we cut back to Nagumo's office and there's still tension here. And so I really enjoyed that. I thought that he has captured that so well from all fronts. We're seeing a lot more subtlety. Yeah. This whole vignette has been to set up the big picture. And I agree with you when you say that it's excellently done. This is definitely the best we've seen out of Keith so far. I think the setup for this chapter, it does so much for everything going forward from here. Yeah, it's cool that we don't have the cackling villain. We see, oh yeah, Langsdorf is going to be the guy we're kind of facing off against, but... They really, he really goes out of his way to make this dude seem like a normal guy, not some like psychopath. You're like, oh, he's just like a, he's a career man. He's a soldier. He's just a guy. And you're like, oh, this is nice though. It's a little less cartoonish. It is. It's nice. I, I quite enjoy yeah, this. Right. I think what Keith really pulls off with this is through these three books, you've got into different depths of the pool of Battletech. And he's kind of transitioned you from the pulpy sci-fi cartoony Flash Gordon villains to the more nitty-gritty, realistic side of war. And Battletech, from what I know going forward from here, doesn't stop at this step. It keeps getting deeper. But you do have to have that transition so you're not just floundering in the deep end of the pool right off the bat. So for somebody coming in brand new to all of this, it's a good set yourself into the mindset you need to be in to really love this stuff. And so that's just the point where so far we get to say Keith has done an excellent job. This is going to be a theme going forward. The price of glory is, as we've said previously in like the remembrance, it's the gateway to the stack pole opening up of Battletech into kind of the macro story, if you will. Well, in this chapter, we got to find out a lot of what was going on behind the scenes, but we'll get to see a lot more of what's going on in the next chapter. Chapter 8. So, this chapter begins with this whole section about Comstar. This is where we learn the most about Comstar. It gives us like a brief history. It came into being during the 28th century. 
almost 300 years ago. This is the organization that controls the interstellar communications network, right? It's Comstar. Let's say that again for people in the back of the room. These are the people that control interstellar communication networks across the entirety of the inner sphere. Yeah, it's incredible. We learn it was founded by a man, Jerome Blake. It was Blake who kept this organization as this separate and neutral thing. It's very specific. You see, Comstar is not part of one of the ruling houses. Comstar is a separate entity, and it was kept a separate entity very specifically by the man who founded it. Because after the collapse of the Star League, it says here, Jerome Blake seized, he used a mercenary army to seize Terra in 2788 and declare it a neutral world under the protection of Comstar. So they control Terra, Earth. That's like the Comstar planet. It's cool. They make a deal with all the like ruling houses, right? That they won't show preferential treatment to any of them. And they all agree. They're like, it makes sense. If I don't have the advantage and he doesn't have the advantage, we get it. So they kind of let them be. They kind of figured out a little something that kind of works for everyone. And they've been doing it for the hundreds of years now. It does make sense, too, with all of the lost technology that was already occurring, that having a group that was allegedly neutral, making sure that the ability to communicate amongst the stars doesn't go by the wayside... It makes a lot of sense. Ah, and of course, Comstar served well in its role of providing interstellar communications, but it had another, stranger side as well. Because after Blake's death, the organization had undergone a reorganization that many saw as the rise of a new religion, right? This is where we get the space wizards kind of aspect <laughs> of Comstar, right? The robes flow in the halls of Comstar, right? There's lots of images, the, especially from back then, lots of hooded figures looking like wizards, hunched over computers and whatnot. It rules. <laughs> they truly made the technology that drives the hyperpulse generators arcane. That knowledge went out of general understanding amongst techs and was specifically controlled by Comstar, which, you know, their initial gamble on neutrality and maintaining said HPGs now has come into the fold of being full-on control because now who else are they going to get to run these hyperpulse generators? Nobody else knows how yeah. to. Which also, it's the whole thing where the Comstar now believes that they hold the key to the rapidly vanishing technology, right? That they, they are really this, this bastion of like technological civilization amongst this war-torn galaxy. They see themselves as these, like, they're going to rise up and guide humanity through the darkness because they've preserved all this knowledge and all this technology from the old days. And so they kind of, they're like technology hoarders, right? If, it, mm -hmm. if it's like advanced tech, they want it. They want to keep it and like study it and not let anyone else have it. Yeah, I was about to say, hoarders and gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. And I like how Key throws in the statement of like, and people just kind of let them do their weird yeah. wizardry around it. Because who isn't superstitious these days? Yeah. 
mainly wanted to talk about it because he throws in a comparison to a lucky wrench and uh, yeah. not having it would jinx the mouthing job. So just have to take every opportunity <laughs> to mention mouthing. I was rereading this prior to recording and I think Kanan was in here and I I said, oh, look, uh, we've got another <laughs> mouthing incident for Aaron. And yep. it's nice to see you're on top of things, bud. Yep. A hundred percent. I'll have it highlighted every time. Believing that they were a bastion against the abyss that threatened to engulf mankind, the followers of the Way of Blake grew and flourished and spread the word of the Eternal, the Blessed Blake. And you're like, oh, wow. Jerome Blake sounds like the kind of guy who's got a Sarna article. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's got a fat one, buddy. A fat one. So, we've now been informed about Comstar. The reader was like, what's the deal with Comstar? Now you know. Don't get me wrong. I think that this is a good summarization of Comstar. I do wish in the previous two books we had gotten a little bit more information scattered throughout to kind of really like show, not tell what Comstar is. Especially now that it appears it might be a key feature of the plot going forward since we're getting this bit of insight. Interesting. Oh, yeah, you might be right. It might be the very next section. (laughs) Yes, the next section. This is the scene with Duke Garth and Rachan. Remember Rachan? He he spoke with him briefly Mm -hmm. back on Sirius. The Precentor. The Precentor. Yes, exactly. And they're in a ballroom. They're having like a little party. I realize they're also on a jump ship. Like they're having a party on a jump ship, which is pretty crazy. It's a pretty cool visual. When I was reading this, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. and then so Rachan is robed, right? That's his whole thing. He's very, I think he's he's trying to be inconspicuous. He looks very suspicious, <laughs> I assume. And he's kind of searching through the ballroom. He finds Lord Garth, right? And he's like, my Lord, you know, it's this this whole thing where... Well, it makes it clear that Rachan thinks that he's smarter and cooler than Duke Garth, and that actually the Duke is the puppet, but he needs to think that I'm the puppet. I must appeal mm-hmm. to his ego and whatnot. It's very cloak and dagger kind of stuff. Yeah. A lot of conversations about velvet gloves over steel fists. Yeah. Speaking of skullduggery and what have you, I did do the due diligence of looking up the name, uh, the jump ship, which is named... Mizar. I was like, interesting. That's a weird word. Let me check it out. Like this proper noun. It turns out, so I ended up on a Wikipedia article about a star named Mizar. And I was like, well, Mizar is likely, if a star is named something, it's usually- The star is named Mizar. (laughs) It's normally named something for a reason. The word Mizar is derived from Arabic and Mizar's meaning is apron, wrapper, or covering cover, which uh, I thought was interesting. Nothing further to say from there. That is interesting. A lot of covering covers going on on the Mazar right now, so it does right. work out. So Rachan approaches Duke Garth, who's Duke, the Duke's trying to party. He even seems kind of irritated. He's <laughs> like, can, can this wait? And he's like, no, I have news, your grace. And he's like, what, what's going on? And Rachan tells him, you should know, Grace and Carlisle has gone to Helm. And the Duke's like, what? No, that can't. And Rachan warns him. He's like, I told you, you should have foreseen this. You should have. He's like, this is kind of on you, Duke. He's destroyed almost a whole company of mechs already. 
right? He trashed him. This guy's got good information. How's Rachan know all this? Like, this just happened. Here he is with these hot, exclusive, you know, <laughs> these like hot scoops. But yeah, he warns Garth. He's like, he warns him of the danger. He's like, look, I told you not to mess around with this guy. Grayson will wreck you. Like, <laughs> this guy's lethal. He's for real. He's like, I'm not joking, Garth. This is some real like mess around and find out kind of stuff. He's like, he's like, I told you you were playing with fire. It does almost make you wonder when you have a monopoly on communication and therefore a monopoly on information that you would choose someone as resourceful as Grayson Death Carlisle to f*** with. But, you know, we'll have to put that aside. Maybe the presenter sees a bigger picture here that I'm not. But... Nonetheless, it does make sense why he has such hot takes, as you say. Yeah. And the Duke, he's very apologetic. He's like, I'm so sorry. I promise. Our goals are still aligned. We want the same things. Please, look, check it out. All right? I can have the better part of three regiments on helm within days. All right? I'm sending more guys. They're already on the way. They're going. More guys are coming. I swear. And uh, Rachan tells him, very good. Do not fail us. And the Duke's <laughs> just like, I understand. And it's cool. We get the whole, we get this whole dialogue on this jump ship. How funny is that? I will also say the whole segment going over Comstar and establishing the supremacy Comstar has over information and technology, and then immediately being like, oh, by the way, the term percenter means he's with Comstar, yeah. like in the very next right. segment. Yeah, and right. then giving this whole scene where he's interacting with Garth and just plays him the whole way through. Plays well, it him. makes him, yeah, makes him a really scary bad guy and not so much in the cartoony villain style, even though it is very fun to see this guy dressed in robes <laughs> yeah. walking around a finely dressed party. Yeah. But <laughs> it's just like, oh, Garth has kind of set all this stuff up in motion underneath the Percentor, we have established Comstar's power, and they have put Grayson in their sights for who knows why. But at this point, it's just getting worse and worse and worse for Grayson. Every chapter is making things bleaker for the Grey Death Legion. So just continuing building that tension. So even what would be a calm party scene has become a massive tension point. And I mean... In a way, I almost feel sympathy for the devil here. You can only imagine what dirt and information this presenter has on Garth and uh, what leverage he can use or even make up. And it seems very likely this presenter, even if he was to make up some lies, he could probably easily enough invent some proof along with it. So Garth has found himself in quite the situation. Though, I'm not saying, now listen, before everyone <laughs> thinks this is another Kevlavik moment, <laughs> I'm not saying Garth's a good man. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I think in order for anyone to have dirt on you in the first place, you probably have to be doing some unsavory things. I'm just saying Garth's in a tough spot here, and he's going to be very impassioned probably to do the presenter's bidding because the or else is even worse than death. <laughs> Well, I'm excited to read your Kevlavik Garth redemption arc story that you'll submit to Shrapnel. Yeah, there it is. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Does Garth pilot a Marauder as well? I don't think Garth pilots anything these days. <laughs> it's true. Now, we're not done yet because 
we got to check back in on Captain Ramage, which we last left him in the trenches, which that's where he's still there. And now the Merrick mechs have begun their attack, right? They're striking at Rom's forces. They're coming in, right? They're coming in hot. Remember those light mechs, they're almost on top of them. And we got, the dudes are shooting rockets. Ramage is yelling out instructions. I like, it says that he, he dishes out either encouragement or curses, depending on their personality, right? Some guys, he's like, you're doing great. And some guys, he's like, you're an idiot. Try harder, depending on whatever works for them. Because he's, you know, he's a good commander. And unfortunately, as predicted, they're not that effective. They're just some dudes with rocket launchers. And the flanking forces are closing in. And I like, there is this scene where, because they're shooting bullets everyone's shooting these big machine guns at, at the locust and stuff at, at one point something falls and hits ramage like on his chest or whatever he picks it up and it's like a flattened bullet from where they had fired some like high caliber like rifle round into the locust and it just flattens itself and like falls down it's like a little metal pancake and he's like we gotta go he's like this isn't what are we doing right he's like i know what's going on they're they're, they're trying to pin us down with the lights they're going to swing the heavies around, right? Flank us. We're donezo. So we got to go. He, and he reaches down. He pulls out a flare gun, right? And like, and shoots up the flare. And everyone starts like running out of the trenches. He's like, come on, pull back, pull back. Except he's like looking around. It is sad. He sees they've all set up these little trenches and little like lean-tos and stuff as cover. And one team stays for their last shot, right? They make that last little missile shot. And he's like, come on, you got to go. Don't mess around. And the locust runs up and he smashes the little gun emplacement. And the dudes are like scrambling out. And the locust just like machine guns the little guys to death. Ramage is so mad about it, right? He's like, what? Not my dudes. And he's like, give me that satchel. And we get this like sick Ramage like hero moment. He grabs the satchel charge. Right. And he goes like sprinting through the smoke. You know, it's very smoky. There's a lot of the locusts can't see that well. And there's still guys like shooting at it. This scene's so cinematic. Yeah. It's awesome. It's funny though. There's some dudes in a machine gun emplacement shooting at the locust. And Ramage sees where they're shooting and he's like, they're shooting too high again. I, I told them they need to shoot lower. That's too high. It's like, how many times? And he's like, oh, well, I guess it's good because if they were shooting correctly, they'd probably kill me. So, you know, but he, he's, like, he's like, I'll have to talk to them when I get back. But the dudes are shooting at it. It's shooting back. It's very smoky. Ramaj runs up and he jumps on the foot and he's like holding on to it as it like takes a step because he's got to jam it in that little when the foot separates from the ankle, right? When it like moves forward, you get that plate separation. And he jams the satchel in there. He's demonstrated this before, back on Verthandi. We had right. a whole, like, tutorial about it. He jams the satchel in there and, like, jumps off. There's, like, a huge explosion. It is sad, though. He, like, turns around when it goes off, and he's like, oh, come on. It should have taken the whole foot off. What is this? <laughs> and he manages. He, like, scrambles, right? Ramaj runs, and he scrambles, and he, like, hides, and he's watching and he sees the locust pilot, though, just stop. The pilot gets out, pops the hatch. This is wild. Yeah, mm -hmm. Ramage is watching him. Ramage is like, why didn't I bring my gun? He's like, I should have brought my gun. I, I could have shot this That's guy. That's a good point. Yeah. 
He like crawls into a nearby trench to try to hide so he's like not noticed. So he's watching the pilot and he's like checking out the damage. The dude's down there like looking at the foot. This is unhinged, by the way. It's this crazy. Merrick Mech Warrior. This is, listen, the best <laughs> thing I can compare this to in modern warfare is a tank crew in the middle of the battlefield, like, but not in the middle, on the front lines having something fall off and then they all get out it's like the whole point of the <laughs> battle mech is yeah. <laughs> it's is like... you keeps the squishy body yeah yes yeah. and you don't expose yourself <laughs> now if this merrick mech warrior had after this happened was like oh shit, and had made an effort to kind of like retract from the front line and gotten behind some micro terrain or even some hills or or something, I'd be like, okay, yeah. not safe, but you know, it makes a little bit more sense. But he might just be freaking out in there. So I'm not I'm not saying that this isn't realistic. This guy could have gotten a little shell shocked and then had this happen to his foot and freaked out and opened the canopy and done all this. But uh climb down, scratch his head a little bit, looking at it, going, hmm, wonder what happened. Yeah, I like I buy that it happens. It's yeah. just you shouldn't do this. TLDR: Don't, <laughs> don't get out of the armor. <laughs> don't do it. It's a good life <laughs> lesson. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, so Ramage is in the trench, right? He's hiding in the trench, but he sees this like when the, the locust pilot gets out, and then his buddy and a wasp comes like barreling through the smoke at him, and this is Ramage is like, oh no, he's totally after me though. He probably saw me, right? Because they have lance mates. So he probably saw me scramble into this trench and he's like, oh, oh, I got to go. And don't forget, mechs have thermal optics. And so. Yeah, but Ramaj taught us that they'll ignore the people yeah, in the bush, see, right? Yeah, they can't see it. Well, don't worry about it. He taught the Verdandians <laughs> that. But he had something yes, private, much different to say. And he's realized the truth of those words now. <laughs> yes. Yes. As he's scrambling to get now get out of the trench that he's just climbed into. And he's like, why did I get in the trench? And the <laughs> why did like, I bring fires? my guns? Why yeah. did I get in the trench? <laughs> he's been a real silly goose. And he shoots. It's The chapter ends with the wasp fires. Yeah, he fires SRMs. At the little trench he's in, and just as Ramage like jumps out, like the trench like explodes and like the missiles go off, and it's just the universe was engulfed by an all-consuming darkness before he hit the ground, and that's it. Not Ramage, <laughs> he's my favorite. You guys have to sell it a little harder than that. Come on, <laughs> we're not selling nothing <laughs> except thunderbolts here. There's no way he's dead. There's no way. Not like this. Not like this. You don't take a Ramage off the board. Absolutely not. <laughs> this whole chapter, I love. I think it's very well written. I love that you see Ramage acting as a commander. He's not really so much worried about getting in the action and, and fighting initially. He's just doing what he's supposed to do as previously as a sergeant and even more so now as a commander, which is ensuring that his dudes are doing what they need to and have what they need to get things done. And so he's just on greasing the gears duty until things get a little bit too personal for him and he sees an opportunity in which he throws the satchel. Sergeant Ramage comes back on the scene. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, oh, y'all about to turn me into the old me. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's got that dog in him. Yeah. (laughs) He calls himself an old dog. He does. It's time to retire. (laughs) Can't remember to bring my guns on the battlefield anymore. Think that's it. What a crazy way to end the chapter. What a cool action scene. A lot of this one was good. A lot of intrigue, right? Yeah. We got got Rachan in the ballroom with the Duke. We get the whole thing about Comstar. We learn so much about the history of Comstar. And then we get this action scene with Ramaj. This is a good chapter. This whole thing, very cinematic. I see the movie in my head, like, had, there was no hangups at any point here. Once we got out of the Comstar discussion and, and like, into the party, mm-hmm. I, like, saw the hustling and bustling of this, like, jump ship party. And, like, I saw it as, like, this, like, overly elaborate and eccentric event right into this like harsh contrast of trench warfare and and like large caliber mech sized machine guns like going along the trenches and like I, uh, the whole thing like all the way at leading all the way up to Ramage jumping on the locust I like see it as like a movie in my head which I think is a testament to Keith's writing style which I think is generally speaking very cinematic yeah I didn't realize how much I wanted trench warfare to be in the robot books. <laughs> I I hope there's more because this was such a cool setup and scene for Ramaj. Ramaj was the perfect character to throw in there by himself. I love it. I I hope this isn't the end for Ramaj because I want to see no more Ramaj action. He'll be back. I, I still well, need I still need my tour Ramaj spin-off adventures. Absolutely. Well, We'll have to find out if we do get more homage action in the future next week when we continue on in The Price of Glory. This was another episode of Of Mechs and Men, a Battletech book club. I am Cannon Hill. I was joined, as usual, by my two friends, Brent and Aaron. As always, we'd like to thank William H. Keith, the author of this book, The Price of Glory, and all the other artists and writers who work so hard to... um keep this property alive. Of course, Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards to the property. We have an email, advice at heat.management. If you have any uh, complaints, corrections, questions, please do not hesitate. Advice at heat.management. And so I do want to say something because I imagine that we've got listeners that aren't current with our new stuff. And even if we've done a remembrance previously on a book and you're kind of late to the party, don't hesitate to message us. We will definitely add your question or comment and talk about it in whatever current remembrance we are on. So please don't hesitate. Please. We just love hearing from you. Absolutely. And we are also on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We are at of Mex and Men, one word. And you can reach out on there as well if you'd like. Send us a message. And the show is available on all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you'd like, please give us a review. Give us a rating. That always helps. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was a pleasure. And we will continue next week with our discussion of The Price of Glory by William H. Keith Jr. Thank you. Don't forget to stay in your mech until the battle's over. That's right. We'll see you then. 